when you finish your film, there's no guarantee it's ever going to get off a shelf. You have to go find a distributor with an anchor attached to a rock. You're climbing Mount Everest. That's what making independent film is. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Sunil Prakash is on the show. Sunil is an independent film producer who began his career in 1992 as the U.S. production coordinator on Kronos, Guillermo del Toro's directorial debut. The rap listed Sunil in their exclusive list of producers who are making a mark on Hollywood, and Fade In Magazine named him one of the top 100 people to know in Hollywood. Sunil has developed a number of projects at major studios throughout his career, including Blast from the Past, starring Brendan Fraser, Alicia Silverstone, Sissy Spacek, and Christopher Walken. He followed up with Premonition, starring Sandra Bullock, and Disney's worldwide blockbuster hit Enchanted, starring Amy Adams which grossed $340 million and received multiple Oscar and Golden Globe nominations. Sunil then produced Salt, a vehicle originally developed for Tom Cruise, but transformed into a female lead for Angelina Jolie. Salt became a worldwide blockbuster in 2010, grossing $300 million. Sunil followed up with the films The Divorce Party, Lifelike, and Spy Intervention. He's currently in post-production on the big-budget Disenchanted, a sequel to Enchanted for Disney+, Plus, starring Amy Adams and Patrick Dempsey. Given his track record making blockbuster films, Sunil is obviously highly sought after by major studios, but his passion is indie filmmaking. His most recent indie is Last Survivors, starring Alicia Silverstone, Stephen Moyer from True Blood, and Drew Van Acker. Last Survivors is an intimate, tense, dystopian thriller about a father and son living isolated, off the grid, in a frigid wilderness to keep safe from a decaying civilization. But their perfect mini-utopia is disrupted when the father is severely injured and his son must go on a hunt for life-saving medicine, where he encounters a mysterious woman, played by Silverstone. I watched Last Survivors before this chat. It's highly original and well-cast with great acting. It's not only fun as a genre film, but transcends the genre by asking thought-provoking questions about love, loss, family, and loyalty. You can watch Last Survivors in select theaters and on VOD. In this interview, Sunil and I talk about his unique path into the film industry, how he navigates the different worlds of big-budget studio filmmaking versus indie filmmaking, why his passion is in indie film, what challenges he faced making Last Survivors during the pandemic, and what projects he's working on currently. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Sunil Prakash. Sunil Prakash, welcome to Dream Path Podcast. Pleasure to be here. How's your day treating you? Hey, not too bad. I was just telling Madison that uh, COVID is in my house, but it hasn't gotten me yet. So I'm kind of the last man standing in my own home. Are you isolating yourself? Are you like by yourself hiding in your little studio? Pretty much. Yeah, this is my <laughs> this is my own little studio my music recording studio and and podcasting station how about you have you you and your family staying safe yeah um uh, knock on wood i've not gotten covid yet we went to the uk in the middle of a covid surge for our world premiere at um fright fest in leeds 
And pretty quickly, am I allowed to say this? We were like, it was just too hard. It was freezing out. So we sort of were indoor restaurants, indoor everything. Yeah. And we were fine. So I'm knocking on wood, you know? It's uh Yeah. Was that for Last Survivors or it was for Last Survivors, yeah. Yeah. We world premiered at London's Leicester Square at Fright Fest. And honestly, like the biggest sort of like question was, can we go in the middle of a COVID surge? It's a little right, you know, um, but we did. So how did the premiere go with this film? I mean, look, it was incredible just because A, it was, we made the film in COVID. So all of this happening this past year and a half is just really, really amazing to be experiencing. To to, to go to London, uh, Stephen Moyer was there, Drew Van Acker was there, Alicia couldn't make it, she was shooting a film in Atlanta, but she was very much part of it and posting, like they're all very supportive of it. And um, just to see your film at a world premiere at a festival, a major festival like Fright Fest, I mean, it was just awesome, incredible, you know? So this film got made in COVID and you being a producer, you are, you know, I guess in deep into the rabbit hole of the logistics of making a film in a pandemic. I would imagine that choosing Montana to shoot this film was strategic beyond just the beautiful scenery. Actually, there are these things called like tax rebates and film incentives out of states. Montana had a very strong film incentive, which is what initially attracted us. And, you know, the beauty of Montana really was a a big part of it. You know, Mm -hmm. COVID was also in Montana, going to your point, everything was open in Montana. Um, You had to wear masks inside, but it was fully open restaurants, bars, you know, kind of like where we're at today. So um, we had really strict rules, though. Like we were not supposed to. We had to all. I mean, I'm the producer, and I had everybody sign a pledge that you have to be really, really careful. No bars, no eating in restaurants. You know, none of that. So hmm. um, because you know, COVID shutdown costs time and money, and we're an independent film. So every day was a little bit like you know, mercifully, no one's testing positive for COVID. Right. So tell me what that means to be an independent film producer and have an independent film. I know that it probably means independent from big studios, but what does that mean exactly? Because I see you've worked on Salt. I assumed Salt was a big studio film. Absolutely. I, I watched it this week and and I uh, was like, holy crap. Those days of making films like that in huge public spaces with these uncontrolled environments. <laughs> I don't know if we're ever going to get back to that again. No. <laughs> um, but obviously studio film. But And now we're talking about Last Survivors, which is an independent film. What are the differences and how do you approach that differently as a producer? It's two very different forms of filmmaking. And my background is doing studio films like Salt, Enchanted um, with Amy Adams. We actually did our sequel this year. We shot our sequel in Ireland over the summer uh, for Disney+. Plus. A studio film, they acquire the script. And in a sense, they're financing everything and they're marketing it, the distribution. So they're the money for every single thing. Now, you're still very involved as a producer creatively you know, not fighting with the studio, but you're there every day to make sure it's going creatively well, not over budget, all of those things. But ultimately, hey, there's always a little bit more money if you run out. You know, it's studios, it's Sony, it's Disney. Um, so you have that in the back of your mind as long as you can convince them. Um, and then again, the marketing of the film, you know, you're going to get a major release with a massive ad spend. Independent films, which I've been making a few of the last few years, I did this because it's the stories I love telling. 
it's harder to get them made at studios today. You know, they tend to like big IP Marvel movies. Mm -hmm. I love stories created from these young, interesting screenwriters as well. And in an independent film, you put the film together, you're struggling to find every bit of it from the director to the cast. And then you've got to find the money yourself, right? which is a whole other ball of wax. And in this case, you know, we're a very modestly budgeted film. That's all you have. So, you know, if someone spills coffee on a costume, it's not like there's an extra $500 lying around to just redo the costume. <laughs> You know? Yeah. Um, so it's a very, I find it exhilarating. I love it. I find independent film. Um, I was telling all my good friends that, you know, work at the studios. There's something about where creativity is the only solution to a problem. It's never money. Mm-hmm. Where salt enchanted, you could always throw a little bit of money to solve a problem, you know, and um, which is, listen, it makes my life easier, but there's something wonderful where ingenuity is what has to sort of, you know, come to the surface to make the day work. How do you straddle that line between studio filmmaking and indie filmmaking with your own business? You have your own production company, I assume. Yep. So what guides you in terms of where to spend your time and resources? Um, you know, it's an interesting sort of question. I definitely wanted to get into the independent space because that it's its own rules. And by the way, here's the other big one. When you finish your film, there's no guarantee it's ever going to get off a shelf. Like there's no, you have to go find a distributor and it's, it's, you're literally, it's like with an anchor attached to a rock, you're climbing Mount Everest. That's what making independent film is. Yeah. And um, I wanted to get in that space because I want to learn how to make movies and sell movies. This is my fourth indie film. I'm very, very proud of the film. I want to do bigger independent films. And I'm also someone who's like, when you're creating a business, you got to sort of go through it and learn it. it. You know, it's a very different mindset on so many levels. So again, I've got, it was awesome for us to make our Enchanted sequel this year. I'm an executive producer on that film. Um, but I, I probably right now, my heart and soul is really really building independent films, you know, um, mm. working with, you know, you know, because you're also now, while it's all very difficult, you're not at the mercy of a studio or a streamer saying yes, you know, so mm. you still try to make movies there, but, you know, studios like to develop movies. They like to do 40 drafts of a script and then decide they don't want to make the film, which is fine. <laughs> That's what they have the right to do. Um, I want to, as I get older, I want to make stuff, you know, and good stuff and with right. interesting people. So it sounds like you're kind of saddled with this corporate bureaucracy in the studio system. I'm not trying to demean or, or disparage the studio system. It's just a different system with a lot of constraints creatively uh, in terms of like what one person can do and the influence they can have on the project. Whereas in an indie film, you can swoop in and wear a lot of different hats and use your creativity to problem solve. And then you have this finished product and it's like, okay, now what? Yeah. Now what do we do? How do we get this thing seen and heard on various platforms and in theaters? That's fantastic. And that's not easy either. I mean, and what's, what's really, really fun about Last Survivors, even being invited to Fright Fest, you know, uh, it's, and even Leeds, we, we, we did Fright Fest two-day Halloween uh, program. There were nine movies there. Six of the nine premiered at other festivals. This was a UK premiere. So one premiered at Sundance, one at Cannes, one at Fantastic Fets, two at Sitkiss, all really prestigious festivals. We were very, you know, we had a newer director, newer writer, 
a cast that isn't necessarily known for festival play. So it was really interesting to have even that opportunity, which then really attracted, you know, distributors. ICM, one of the major agencies came on, uh, they, they represent um, Drew Van Acker and Stephen Moyer. They came on to represent the film. They were very, very excited about it. And, um, but all of this is all not a guarantee. And we ended up, you know, getting a really good distributor. Vertical Entertainment um, is a, top boutique distributor they've really really you know done a lot for the film which is amazing it's it will get seen all over the world they're selling it internationally um you know after you know it, it's it's going to be everywhere theaters and digital uh on friday so it, it's it's really really heartening to see you know the momentum build from those days in montana in 10 degree weather where i'm like where's the heaters and something <laughs> i can be warm in you're like Sunil, there's no money for that like so like you know it's a right that's funny so let's talk about distribution and distributors because you're speaking a language that you're familiar with and your colleagues are but my listeners probably don't understand the difference between a distributor and say a film studio you know what does a distributor do relative to all of the other uh, roles that are being played in the indie film process a, a distributor releases the film and they in general technically pay the marketing as well so they're i mean to get the film onto itunes amazon fandango all those digital platforms is you know you need a distributor who knows how to sort of do that and has relationships and you know, there's a lot that goes into distributing a film, big or small. Um, the studios are distributors. That's one of the big advantages of having a studio film. You know, you finish your film, now Disney marketing or Sony marketing takes it over. Um, and they have a lot more money, obviously, at the studios, you know, 50 to 75 million versus, you know, way less for a, a smaller independent film. But the distributor gets it out there. They, you know, and they do the marketing, the PR, all of those various different aspects to get your film you know, as much profile uh, as possible. Um, one of the problems right now is I think there's too many independent films out there in the studios and streamers started making much bigger things. Everybody seems to be making independent films. So it's just very hard to break through the noise. And that is, I meet so many young filmmakers, um, you know, they just, you know, more often than not, I'm not going to do their script. I didn't respond, but even giving them advice it's like, I'm not trying to be difficult, but I'm trying to say to them, but what, where does your movie end up? You know, how is this better differentiated? All of those different things you got to think about. Mm -hmm. In terms of accessibility of you, like accessing Sunil, uh, you know, how do people reach you typically? Is it through your representatives that, that, that you know, funnel projects down to something that you might be interested in? So how do screenwriters and filmmakers get FaceTime with you? Generally in my career, it's people I meet, you know, and meet, you know, in Los Angeles, Kurt Wimmer, who wrote Salt. I met him at a party in 1993 and he gave me a card. He doesn't remember this. That said, Kurt Wimmer, screenwriter, you know, and I called him the <laughs> next day uh, and he claims that's not a true story. So we'll, we'll never know. Um, uh -huh. But um, uh, the fun of it is, I generally meet people because it's, you know, agents send me scripts and projects all the time. I've most of my movies, including Salt and Enchanted, Enchanted, I developed from scratch, ground up, Salt, a very early rough draft that doesn't resemble anything that we ended up with. 
So I tend to like to meet writers, get to know them, get to know their writing and or directors. You know, um, Drew Milray, who directed uh, uh, Last Survivors, uh, it's actually the second film I've made with him. I met him, you know, viewed his shorts. We were in touch for six months before we actually ended up starting working together. So for me personally, I tend to like to get to know people because you're taking a journey with the, it's it's like taking a road trip with like five people. So it's, they're not five. Yeah. You want to know that you have a connection with them that can allow you to get to the end of the road, so to speak. Right. Well, I noticed that too, with the actors, I'm looking at your filmography. There's some common denominators there with Drew and Alicia. And, you know, I'm not sure about Stephen Moyer, but it seems like you work with the same people over and over again in some films. I, I've worked now with Van Acker on three movies. We're actually producing a number of future projects together as well. But when I met him on Lifelike, you know, he looks like Brad Pitt, but he's a really, really strong actor. Mm-hmm. And that's the surprise. He's smart. He's, you know, really, really dedicated to what he does. And when I find people like that today, I'm like, hold on to it and keep working with them. Because as I yeah. get older, I've done it. I've done a lot of different things and worked with, I've worked with, you know, Angelina Jolie, Sandra Bullock, Amy Adams. This is, I mean, I'm so lucky to have done that. But at this point, when I'm building my next step of the business, I really want to do it with people that like, you know, I know we're good. I'm less open to the unknown today as I get older, you know, like, right. um, and, uh, you know, uh, Alicia, we did Blast from the Past years ago. Uh, although when she came to Montana, she's like, I know we did a movie together years ago. I don't remember you at all, (laughs) which she and I laugh about. Um, Moyer, I had met, um, we did a, Tom Cruise was attached to Salt uh, before we flipped it to a female and we did a table read at Sony and Moyer was actually part of the table read. So I had met him years ago. Hmm. I didn't know him well, but it's, I think that's always helpful when you're trying to cast a film, if you have some connection to the actor, because it's just so hard to get actors even if they love the material, it's just, it's a very interesting time where it's hard to get, you know, actors to want to do your movie for just a number of reasons, you know, especially in a world where so much television and streaming is going on. Mm -hmm. Independent films, they sort of always have like a blinking green light. Like they're almost there. Your money's there, but they're not really signing on the dotted line. So you're kind of playing this game where you're saying, oh, we're pushing a month. We're pushing a month. We're pushing a month. And you need cast that loves it, that wants to kind of go on that journey. Same with the director. Otherwise, it'll all just implode on itself. Going back to Drew, you talked about how he looks like Brad Pitt. And I I was thinking the same thing, except that he's a lot more chameleon-like than Brad Pitt. And the problem with Brad Pitt, if this is a problem at all, it's a nice problem to have, I guess, is that he's always Brad Pitt. I mean, it's kind of like George Clooney. He's just, there's just Clooney-esque presence that George Clooney has, same with Brad Pitt. But Drew has that movie star quality, but you can be looking at him in a film like Last Survivors and not know that he's the same star of Lifelike or other films that he's been in or other TV shows. In terms of his age, sometimes he looks really young and sometimes he looks you know, old. I think that's a remarkable quality. I'm not sure you have control over it. Maybe it's just something you're born with, but it is remarkable about Drew. He works very hard. To, to, he's a passionate actor. Again, when we met him on Lifelike, it, what you think, it, look, we, I say this with no disrespect. There's so many actors, actresses, and there are certain cliches of what an actor actress is. Drew is not the cliche of what you think he would be. Because again, he looks a certain way, but he's a character actor. He reminds me a lot of Amy Adams. 
you know, she becomes the Amy Adams and Junebug is nothing like the Amy Adams is Enchanted, which is nothing like the Amy Adams and the Fighter. She's a character actress or even like Sissy Spacek, who I worked with years ago. Drew is a character actor. Absolutely. Right. And he loves loves to dive deep into the psychology of the roles and become the characters. And that's why he's like, you know, again, when you meet people like that, you want to work with them over and over. That's great. Let's talk about your work on Enchanted, because you said that you worked on that from the ground up. You developed that film, which is an amazing accomplishment because it's one of the films that will live forever in the library of children and adults. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm glad that there's a sequel coming out, but what do you mean by the ground up in terms of development? What is involved in developing a film and what is development? In that particular case, the writer and I, we'd actually, he'd written Blast from the past, so I knew him well. Um, and we literally were like, what's the next thing we should do? And we really actually started as this idea, which is sort of funny, about like a nun leaving a convent. He actually wrote a draft of it and it just wasn't playing right. Like it was just, it just didn't work. We were trying to do something about like innocence, that no kids have innocence anymore. And then somewhere in the process, we sort of just were spitballing and we're like, what if it was like a Disney fair, not even a Disney character. Um, this was before it was a Disney, a fairy tale character. And that kind of clicked. And then we literally like come up with the beats together, work you know, I work kind of hand in hand with them. And then we, you know, the finished script, we gave it to his then UTA agents. They really liked it. And we sent it out to a bunch of, I was young in my twenties, a bigger producer for each studio who has a deal at all the majors. And we ended up in a massive bidding war. We sold it to Disney who then kind of converted it a little bit more Disney-esque. Like in the draft that we initially developed, she was hired as a stripper for the bachelor party. That had to go, <laughs> you know, like, um, but the smarts of the movie always retained. It was always supposed to be fairy tale idealism collided with almost like intellectual real world cynicism. The smarter we are, the less we feel and finding that balance between the two. Um, and then obviously we made the film for Disney. Kevin Lima, brilliant director, uh, did such a good job. I mean, he he brought back all the original people who painted like Ariel and Belle and like really knew how to do the, he, you know, he'd come off of doing Tarzan. So he comes from Disney animation, but it was a lot of love. Uh, then Nina Jacobson, who ran the studio, went on to produce Hunger Games and Crazy Rich Asians. You know, she said, I want to make a classic out of this. And I give her all credit for like, it, I mean, it is a bona fide classic today. I agree. And what a pleasure. And again, so humble that it stood, you know, the, the, the test of time. So in terms of producing, and sorry to get kind of geeky with the vernacular and the vocabulary here, but when you see executive producer of a film versus producer or produced by, what do those credits mean? It, it, look, I got an executive producer credit on Enchanted because I was, I want to say 27 when I sold it. And so we made it years later, it took eight years to get made. Credits are often contractual. Generally speaking, the produced by credit is the main producer. But a lot of times, like, like an indie film, someone will bring a little chunk of money, but they say, we want that credit. So the PGA is starting to, that little PGA that you see on credits, that doesn't mean they're producers guild. It means they were the main producer on the movie, like as determined. Okay. And they're, you know, it's a bit of a diluted thing because sometimes there's exec producers who did more than the producers. Usually though, it's the producing credit is the best one. Executive producer, second best one co-producer associate. The other thing I'll say is like, you see Spielberg will executive produce something, which then means 
you know, he's still very involved, but not day to day, you know, like, and he's lending Got it. his name or putting his name and using his company. And you see that often, like major people who want to, you know, take those executive producer credits. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. Going to Salt, you talked about Tom Cruise being originally attached and then it switched to a female lead with Angelina Jolie. What prompted that switch in narrative in the film and, and stars? I mean, it was a pretty major difference in how that story is going to be told. And also the star, obviously, you, you have an equally amazing star in Angelina Jolie, kind of the equivalent of a Tom Cruise in, in the female lead. But how did that transition happen and why? So it's a script that Kurt Wimmer wrote, we developed. Um, initially, Kurt was going to direct it. This is 2005, I want to say. And it just wasn't getting off the ground. He directed something else. And he's just like, Sunil, why don't we just let go of me directing it? You know, figure out something else to do. The script had actually been around. And this is one of my favorite stories. I was in post-production at Sony on Premonition. There was a young exec there named Hannah Mangella, who now is the president of J.J. Abrams' company. And I gave her the script saying, I'm working on this thing. It's old. It's like sort of been around. Everyone's seen it in the last two years. There may be some lowball option from Warner Brothers as a favor to Kurt's agent. Some, it, was some, it was just not clicking. That night at our premonition screening, the chairwoman, Amy Pascal of Sony, walks up to me and says, I want to buy your script. I'm like, mm. what? <laughs> I've not read it. Hannah read it at lunch. Loves it. Do not, like, let me call you in the morning. The next day, I, 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 the number may be wrong, but she ended up paying like $2.8 for the script. Wow. So it became, when a studio back in that era bought a spec script for that kind of money, immediately everyone reads it. And that's how Tom Cruise was an incoming call. Um, he was attached for a year. I think, again, I'm speaking for, from purely my own opinion, but I always think somehow, somewhere, it was very similar to Mission Impossible. And he loved it. We had a bunch of meetings. It was awesome, but it just didn't work out. Our deal with them was such at Sony, they had to make it over a period of time. And it was Hannah Mangella, who at that point was... I want to say that then she was the president of Sony Animation, then she was Columbia, but she said, what about Angelina Jolie? And my director, Philip Noyce, who's, again, incredible, did such a good job. He'd worked with Angelina on The Bone Collector, and he's like, absolutely, let's do it. Um, her manager knew all about the project because it was sort of a very well-known project. We sent it to her, she was in, and there you go. <laughs> Going back to your days of Stanford University and economics and communications, seems like kind of a, a, a reach or, a, you know, far away from the movie industry. But if you look at your work as a producer in terms of understanding the economics of film, I would imagine there's a pretty close uh, nexus there between what you studied and what you ended up doing. Absolutely. Um, Stanford was very liberal arts, even economics. I mean, we did a little statistics and econometrics that gets a little number crunchy, but it was really liberal arts economics, you know, learning supply and demand um, uh, graphs and understanding all these theories. Communications, we had history of film, but it was also, there's a lot of theory in there. And then Stanford, at least when I was there, and I'm pretty, from keeping up, they still do it. 
it's a very um, liberal arts education. Like, you know, you had to take philosophy and literature. So it was really a way to critically think and learn. And that to me was the best tool for, for Hollywood, for storytelling, for making movies, to understand, you know, and again, economics, it's a really smart way to think about things. And even in the communications major, we learned all about research methodology and like statistics. So like even back when we do these huge test screenings on salt, I would be like, guys, um, that's statistically not significant to the standard deviation. I would sort of be like, I actually kind of think I understand this better than anyone else in the room. <laughs> my parents would be happy that my college education actually contributed to something. When did the idea of working in film begin? Was that in college? Was it before you went to Stanford? I mean, I, I loved, I mean, we came from India when I was three. So um, this is the seventies. I, I, from seven years on, when I seven years old, I saw Star Wars maybe four or five times in the theater. Mm. I was like, I want to make movies then. And my parents were immigrant doctors, and they were like, okay, first you become doctor, then you go make films. <laughs> you know, like, you know, when is med school? They still ask me when I'm going to med school, but and they're right. they're retired at 86. Um, I always wanted to do that. My senior year at Stanford, I saw Dances with Wolves three times in the theater. I was so profoundly moved by the film. And I said, I have to just drive to LA and see what happens. And if nothing happens, I'll come back. But at least I know I tried. Mm. And um, I got a job through a girl in my dorm, my senior dorm. Her father was friends with someone. He wasn't a well-known or even a known producer, but he had this little film he made was making in Mexico that was Guillermo del Toro's first film. Mm. So I actually drove Guillermo around when I was like 22. That's right. You know, before he was, any, you know, Guillermo del Toro. And that's when I learned kind of what the journey of being a producer was. You have to know people. And I kind of went off on my own and spent a lot of time, you know, going to every class I could, like AFI, UCLA Extension, and then meeting the people who would come do the class. Like if it was an exec at Universal, it's how I met Nina Jacobson very early on. And start reading scripts and start developing and meeting young writers and understanding that this writer is better than those 10 scripts that I just read that sold on the spec market. And it started working very quickly for me. Like 24 was my first big sale to New Line. Mm, wow. That sounds like a very organic way to start in the industry, just with that passion for film with Star Wars and Dances with Wolves, and then going directly to the epicenter of the film industry of Los Angeles, attending those classes. That's incredible. And, and look where you're at now. I mean, making not only studio films, but also getting the best of both worlds and being an indie film as well. Absolutely. It's why the indie films are so gratifying, because it really is my entire career. I kind of created, I always joke, I kind of it's all from, it all came from nothing. Like I didn't have, like, I always joked that no one returns my calls or emails if I wasn't sending them something they wanted to see or read, you know, like, yeah. um, and I always say to younger people today too, who are starting out in the industry that like, one of the best advice I ever got was from Nina Jacobson, where she said, be, you know, differentiated, elevated, stronger, you know, you know, understand that like we're at universal. We have a lot of producer deals. A lot comes our way. Why is what you send me going to be rise of the cream to the crop? You know, um, it, it's, it's all about like never forgetting you're competing in a marketplace when you're trying to succeed. I don't know why, but it's sort of like the thing I seem to say the most to newer people who are, you know, wanting to be actors, writers, directors, producers, and they kind of, it, it's maybe it's just a different vibe of our world or our culture, but be Darwinianly competitive, you know, against everybody else, because there isn't a slot for everybody. You know, it's, uh, mm -hmm. 
Are you finding that there are more slots though for folks now that the streaming platforms have multiplied by a hundred and we're seeing I mean, so many different platforms? I, and I say this without sounding negative, but I'm going to actually say it's a little bit the other way because what you see is like Hulu primarily is now just making movies. Fox is now Hulu. They, you know, they Disney bought Fox. Fox is making 14 movies for Hulu a year, you know, and they very much want to elevate what they're doing. This is from friends of mine at Fox telling me this. They'll still buy films in the second run, but it's way less. Netflix, you know, they make their own movies right now. If you look at Netflix, Hulu, they're not really buying a lot of movies out of festivals anymore. And even when you, you know, it, it, yes, there's all these different things like Paramount Plus and all these streaming platforms. But I, what I'm seeing, to be honest, is like, you know, people who already are making movies are making more movies. I actually wish there was more room for the newer. I mean, one of the things I really, really pride myself in all four of my indies were newer writers and directors, you know, like that no one had ever heard of. So um, it's, it's, I love when I met Kurt Wimmer or Bill Kelly, who wrote Enchanted, they were unrepresented. Um, again, when I met Drew Van Acker, he had some success on Pretty Little Liars, but not he didn't have the recognition he has today. And I love nurturing your talent. Like it's one of my favorite things to do. And I wish there was more, there was frankly more open to it and openness to it when I first came to Hollywood, because back then the idea was it doesn't matter where a good idea comes from. You know, you, you again, you look at Netflix, most of what they're doing and buying is what they make themselves. And I don't count the movies they licensed like three years ago for like 25 grand or whatever, you know, like an indie film. It's, it's definitely a model that's changing, you know? Yeah. How does one become, if you're giving advice to someone who wants to become a producer, they know they don't want to be in front of the camera. They maybe are not hardwired for screenwriting or directing, but they want to be in the film business, maybe as a producer. Is becoming a movie producer something that folks can aspire to do and actually become for instance, at Tisch School of Arts in New York University, you can go to like a screenwriting program or you can focus on actual filmmaking where you're directing your short and presenting it to your professor and sort of becoming a young filmmaker that way. Is there a similar path for movie producing? I mean, there are schools like I think UCLA has a producer's program. USC has a very prestigious, but they're very small. I think the two things, if you want to be a producer, are you either need to find a great piece of material that you then own the rights to and or find financing. Those are the two places in the indie space. There's always, look, there's always the traditional way where you can go be an assistant to an agent at one of the big agencies, get a job within the system. That is a way that you can climb up through the years as an executive. But if you want to produce like what I did, it's finding a great piece of material. Like maybe it's a, a friend of yours wrote a novel and they're going to let you, you know, be a producer on it. Um, or, or again, a young screenwriter that wrote a really good script. What I always say is like, if someone comes looking for what a great script is, you got to read a thousand scripts before you get a sense of what the marketplace in Hollywood is, you know, right. because technically anything could be great with the right execution. Does that make sense? So there's a little bit of a, like, I know five pages in whether the writing voice interests me or not, you know, of, of a screenwriter. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't hit a certain level, I'll, I'll skim to 30. And then if the plot's not interesting, you sort of, you know, you, you know, right. that's as far as you get. Um, I, I, one thing I will say is I meet a lot of people who want to produce a lot of young people can raise money and they do, 
the, you know, if you can raise money and or get the right project and meld it in the right way, and also understand that the first few things you produce, you're not going to be calling all the shots. Never make it about your ego. Learn what the game is. You can do very well, in my humble opinion. You know, mm-hmm. learn the in Hollywood is like Rome. Like when in Rome, do as Rome does. There's a culture to mainstream Hollywood. I say this a lot to people because I've done this now thirty years. You know, it's 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 never what people say. You know, if they say they loved your script and you never hear from them again, they hated your script. You know, it's <laughs> like <laughs> on the flip side, if they don't respond, but suddenly you know they're reaching out to you a lot. You, you, it's it's its own culture here, and I think you know, especially with independent film, I mean, you can make a really good film for two to three hundred thousand dollars with the right script, you know, and raise the money. And and again, you know, look at what look at what's playing not only at the top six festivals, but Fantastic Fest, Fright Fest, Sitkiss. Look at the top thirty festivals. It's really hard to get into the top six if you don't have prior sort of relationship with the bigger festivals, you know, mm. um, especially today. Did you read those articles that were saying that Sundance, you know, this year feels like a little bit of a, you know, a little bit like a lot of streaming films, a lot of Amazon and Netflix films were premiering there. Mm-hmm. So that sort of takes a slot away from an indie film. But again, your indie film could premiere at like Fantastic Fest, get the right momentum behind it, and you could win big. And I think that's my biggest thing is that you can get whether it's a great piece of material um, or raising money or both, you can go very far with it. But always, I always say to people is just remember, why is it better differentiated? Like, how does it compete in the marketplace versus just you loving it? That would be my Mm -hmm. sort of biggest two cents. Yeah. So Last Survivors, what called you to that film, given that you have so many projects that are coming at you from many different directions, studio, indie, and uh, you chose this one, you, and you were out there in the cold in Montana shooting this film. Why Last Survivors? I developed it from scratch as well. I was the writer of Lifelike. Uh, the writer actually directed Lifelike as well. We, he, he was a friend of mine uh, for years, and he came to me saying, I want to write. He'd written this one script that I helped him with, but I said, you're really good. Let's do something else. And he wanted to do something about preppers. His whole thing was, they're just fascinating. And we watched a bunch of videos, and I thought there was something fascinating about people, doomsday preppers, who believe the world is going to end and let's be ready. But we sort of took it more to that kind of like a metaphorical idea. What if somebody thought, have you seen the film yet, by the way? Oh yeah, I watched it. I I don't want to give too much away to the audience, but what if someone thought that it's more metaphorical apocalypse where humanity went bad? I love, even Enchanted, I love strong thematics to filmmaking. And I really like, I think the best movies feel simple, but underneath it all, there's layers and depth that some will choose to see, but it doesn't matter if you see it or not because it's there, you know? Yeah. So we're really like, I'm very interested in that idea of our own humanity and our own hatred for humanity. And that's where this all came with this triangle and sort of what to believe and what not to believe. And yet at the end of it, there is hope in Jake, which again, you know, anyone who's seen my films, I've as yet to make a film with like a real downer ending, you know, like I, I do believe movies should leave you cathartically like going to a better place in your day, you know? Yeah, this one definitely did. And and it is nuanced and it is layered and it poses some very interesting questions, but it's also, it, it's, it's hard to put it in a category because it, it covers 
multiple genres at the same time and great cast and a great story. And I wish you all the best in having this roll out in theaters and on VOD. I I appreciate that. And the cast, look, again, it's a small film in Montana. Uh, Alicia was uh, joking the other day in an interview about how like her triple banger smelled like manure. And it really did. (laughs) This is a, there was no, I mean, there's no creature comforts here on salt. When we did the snow, we would be in these huge tents with these like heating stones. It was very lovely. You know, this was the elements in Montana and everybody who went to the film, we shot it in 18 days. They were there to just make that movie. There were days where the crew, including me, including Van Acker, were carrying equipment halfway up a hill to get to that little moment with a secret spot. You know, it was really, Mm -hmm. it was really amazing to see everybody. Our DP did such a beautiful job. Our director, director Milray, um, you know, every day just rallying despite that. There's a scene where um, uh, Troy takes Drew back to the secret spot. It was a white out snowstorm. (laughs) It was back up that hill. That's like a 15 minute walk with the equipment. Yet, you know, everyone went and um, it looks, it actually looks like we're a big budget film, you know, creating this like on a stage or something, which I love. It does. The cameras that are available to indie filmmakers now are so much better than they used to be. And now you can make a film that looks like a studio film on a very low budget. I mean, look on this one, because of COVID, I think we made a bigger film. Everyone just got paid a lot less. Like people were willing, right? you know, it's, it's the cast all took, you know, the, the passion was there. The DP brought his own lenses. I think in a non-COVID arena, people would be, you know, people would be a little bit more like, let's pay a little bit more, you know, like our hair and makeup was one lady. Uh, I've worked with her twice before. She brought a ton of her own stuff, you know, like to make the blood and all that stuff look really good. So a lot of passion and sweat equity. Nice. Are you going to work with Wimmer on the sequel of Salt? I saw that you're developing that, or it's in the works at least. It's in the works. Let's see if that happens. You know, we I was sort of surprised. We've been working on our Enchanted sequel for so many years. Right before the pandemic, it became very real, you know, which was amazing. I, I, I don't know whether it will actually happen. And there's been talks of doing all sorts of things, you know, Salt TV, Salt sequel. Let's see what happens. But um, Wimmer is at this point not working on it. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm working with Wimmer on other stuff. He's still a good friend. And, you know, all of them, Philip Noyce, Kevin Lima, they're all, I love, you know, these journeys you take with these filmmakers. They become lifelong friends. Well, I learned so much talking to you, Sunil, and I appreciate you sharing your time with us and your story and your journey. A pleasure. Have a great day and thank you. All right. Good luck with the film. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. You too. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.